0: Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change, and environmental justice podcast. We are right on time. Every two weeks right here, we are brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. How are you all doing out there? It is rainy it is windy here at the home office in the far north even the dogs are hanging out inside they're wet and under my feet and stinking up the room i hope you've all had a chance to keep up with our fellows work i know it's difficult they are a prolific bunch just last week karthik amarnath published an essay on the need for the medical field and others to connect the dots between medical symptoms and patterns of injustice check it out at ehn.org under our special projects tab I'd like to take a moment and highlight one of this podcast's supporters, Rachel's Network, a community of women at the intersection of environmental advocacy, philanthropy, and leadership. You can find out more at rachelsnetwork.org. All right. Today's show, I am talking to Dr. Jamaji Wanaji Enwaram, a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a final year MD MPP candidate at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Kennedy School of Government talks about his family embracing their Nigerian heritage when they moved to North Carolina, his research on indoor air pollution in Africa, why epigenetics research is such an important field for understanding how the environment impacts our health, and his wide ranging training in environmental research, medicine, and now public policy. Enjoy. <music> Now I am really excited to be joined by Jamaji Wanaji Enwerem. Jamaji, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing wonderful.
0: We were talking beforehand. It is a little cold here, but other than that, I'm doing okay. And where are you? Where are you talking to us from?
1: So right now, I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cool.
0: Very cool. So uh, speaking of place, that's a good, that's a good uh, spot for us to start. So you were born in southeastern Nigeria, but moved to North Carolina when you were young. But it sounds like your parents really held on to the native language, food and storytelling. And I'm wondering how this, uh, how this shaped your childhood.
1: So I, I think uh, that's a great place to start because um, uh, it's sort of where my own story starts as well. Um, so I moved to the States with my mom and dad at the age of one and a half. Uh, and I think it's one thing to say that my mom and dad sort of shared our culture with me, um, but it's actually probably a little bit more accurate to say that they lived it with me. So from various foods like fufu uh, to listening to songs like Osudebes, Osundi, Owendi, um, I think Igbo culture itself really permeated almost every aspect or facet of my life. Um in fact I think my parents actually decided not to speak English at home whenever we first moved to the States. Uh they thought that I would be able to learn it from radio and news and school and things like that. But they really wanted me to be able to speak Igbo. Um and as I sort of reflect on that, I feel like that decision uh really paid off a lot and uh has definitely added a degree of richness to um a number of my various interactions. And I think one other thing that I would add as I sort of think about early life, um, and something that my mom and dad uh, were very intentional about um, is that they took uh, my siblings and I everywhere, right? So uh, whether it was a cultural wedding or birthday, we were there whether it was something that wasn't as happy. So someone being sick in the hospital or something like that, we were there as well. Um, And I think my father says it best where like, oftentimes people think, oh, you know, we don't necessarily need to expose kids to all of these things. Um, But for him and for my mom, it was important for them to really, um, for them to really show us who they were in all spaces, not just at home, right? So ups and downs, Sacrifices, frustrations, failures—we really got to see a lot of it, and I think that has really helped uh, shape the man that I am now, um, and also the vision that I have for myself, both professionally and in my own personal life. Oh, that's that's really cool, and, and I think when we think so, now
0: we can look back at um, at your experience. Um, I didn't have this as much, but the it's it's really beautiful to think about. Um, having that cultural experience growing up to to now look back and say, oh, that wasn't normal for a lot of other kids, even other immigrant families that probably wasn't the norm. They probably tried to assimilate as much as possible. But was there any confusion at the time? I mean, you're probably watching the car- same cartoons I am. Uh, and uh, But then you have this whole other side of life. I'm wondering if there was any confusion or if it was just kind of that that's how it was.
1: You know, I. I think when you're young like that, there's so many things that are happening that you don't really register, right? Like sure, you live those moments, but you don't necessarily feel the weight of them until you look back on them. Um, So yeah, I mean, like the food that I ate every day at home uh, was traditional food. Uh, It wasn't until later on in life that my parents started to uh, make spaghetti for us at home and things like that. But at the same time, when I went off to school, I was having those things at lunch it's just i didn't realize that whenever others went home you know that's what their food probably looked like as well right um so uh i'm sure there are differences that i uh am basically more aware of now but we're definitely still there when i was younger
0: that's the beauty of these things happening when you're little is you're just a sponge right you're you're just absorbing these materials and you're not giving the same intentional thought that we do as adults. Um, exactly so it's a great time to be exposed to that. So the kind of the next step, uh, well, there was probably many steps in between, but you went to, uh, Morehouse college, which is a historically black college for men in Atlanta. Um, I'm curious about this cause I went to a very large state school here in Michigan and I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to hear about why you chose an all-male HBCU and, and what that experience was like and, and how it shaped you.
1: Yeah. So, um, HBCUs were a new thing for my family as well. You know, we had just moved over to the States um, and we personally, you know, whenever we look back now and think about the people who lived in our neighborhoods and things like that, we knew people who had gone to HBCUs, but we just didn't know that they went there. Right. Um, So whenever it was time for me to apply to college um, at that stage, I had sort of decided that I um, wanted to go to med school and being the overeager student that I was, uh, one of the things that I thought of was finding a place that wasn't too far from home uh, that was also associated or affiliated with a med school. Um, And I thought that would be important for me because it would help with possibly getting exposure, maybe getting some mentorship. Um, so just having that available because I knew that that was a path that I wanted. So whenever I made my list of schools, um, it had all of your standard places on it, um, but then it also had HBC on it as well. Um, and then it came time to sort of submit everything and uh, we got letters and things back. And then my parents and I actually went to visit various schools um, and, there was just something unique and something special. Whenever we got to Atlanta, it was, it's so vivid in my mind now, literally one of the sunniest, brightest days ever. The weather was perfect. Um, We arrived uh, and uh, I remember just looking around and seeing basically a sea of black students who looked just like me. Um, And this wasn't just like four or five, literally hundreds, right? Um, and my parents were the type that they sort of did things. They didn't necessarily schedule meetings with, uh, departments and things like that. So we sort of arrived, uh, just, uh, at the school. Um, but we eventually found our way to the department of biology, uh, walked into the office there and were immediately able to meet with the head of it. And he sat down with us and talked to us about where I had been, what I was aspiring to, um, accomplish. Uh, and just who I was and that interaction whenever I think back on it now was one that was unique and that I didn't get at any other place that I went to Um, so whenever we got home it was pretty much a a very uh, obvious thing
0: so between the representation and the kind of the personal touch which I, uh, I, I wouldn't hate on the school I went to. It's a large state school here in Michigan. But um, the personal touch wasn't there, right? There, there was mm. massive classes and maybe it was my apathy, right, too. But uh, that personal touch, I think, is is something that I didn't get in college that I think is really helpful because it's such a transition period but yes. I am curious about the all male aspect a little bit. Uh, I went to an all male high school actually, and I look okay. back on it and I think it forged some really kind of deep friendships and kind of this you know male camaraderie, for better or for worse. And then on the flip side, I think at least in high school it wasn't it wasn't necessarily always a good thing to not have women there, right? It, yeah, it, yeah. It was, you know, that's 50% of the population or whatever, 100%. you know, so how, did that, how, how, what were maybe the good and the bad, or how did that play out?
1: So I think whenever you read about this experience, uh, that's what a number of people think, right? Oh, it's an all male school. Uh, but the thing that most people don't realize is that literally across the street is an all female <laughs> school called Spelman. Uh, and uh, we interact all the time, all social events are combined. Um, you can even enroll and take courses there. They took courses with, with us. Um, so as far as getting that sort of that sort of interaction, it was definitely there um, and wasn't lacking. Um, however, when it came to sort of living and um, in most of your courses, yeah, it, it was an all male experience. Um, but I think that was important for us as well. I mean, you know, these days we talk about um, the unique sort of obstacles that people of color face living here in the States Um, and some of those are really specific for like males as well right so being able to have a safe space to discuss those things and um, think about and learn about how others have sort of handled those obstacles was actually very meaningful as, as well.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I know I'm, I'm a sports fan and I know lately uh, basketball has been putting a, a big spotlight on HBCUs. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of it was in in the aftermath of George Floyd and a lot of these yeah. other um, uh, heinous incidents. And the idea was um, talking to black black men, to black males at these universities. Uh, so I think that um, that's a really good point. So um, you mentioned this interaction at uh, uh at the, at the college there, and maybe this, this answers this question, but what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? Wow. A moment or an event?
1: So, let me see if I remember this the right way. We, um, so I found that if I was accepted to Morehouse in December of 2000 and. What year was that 2007 yeah wow okay (laughs) (laughs) um uh i decided to enroll that spring so probably around march or april of 2008 and after sort of deciding that i was going to enroll i was sort of just ready to start school that following august Um, But while still in high school, uh, I remember one afternoon or one evening, must have been in May or so, May of 2008 maybe, or maybe even in April. But I got a phone call, um, and I got a phone call from a professor, uh, Dr. Rommel Thompson, um, and she uh, said that they were going through the registry or the list of students who were starting in the fall, and she saw that I was um, going or planning to major in biology. Um, and that she was leading a new uh, Department of Defense funded um, initiative um, that was aimed at helping to increase the number of black males who were getting PhDs in STEM. Uh, and she said that, you know, from what she's read about me, that she thought that I'd be a good fit, but that it would mean that I would have to come down to school in the summer and spend, I believe, four or five weeks there uh, being exposed to, like, research and things like that. So mind you, I told you very early on from like middle school, I decided that I was going to go into med school. That's where my passion was. Um, But this was a whole different avenue that I had really never thought about this whole idea of research and research being something that you could pursue for a living. Um, But I really had nothing else set up. So I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to be at home anyways. This sounds like it could be an enriching opportunity to learn something else. Um, So why not? So I said, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm free. I'll be there. And they signed me up and I ended up spending that month or so there being exposed to research from all, all areas. So biology, physics, everything. Um, And at the end of it, and I didn't know this on the front end. um, If you performed well throughout those four or five weeks, uh, you'd be formally accepted into the hop scholars. That's the name of it. HOPPS. And as a hop scholar, um, you basically were uh, matched with the research advisor who you did research with uh, during the fall and the spring for your whole time there, um, but then you also um, helped to apply to pursue summer research elsewhere, so at um, some of these larger, more research-funded institutions. Um, So from hops, I was able to do research at a number of other areas. I did research at Merck, uh, during the summer of 2011, I believe. Um, and those experiences really helped to broaden, I think what I wanted to do with my life, uh, to be very honest with you, I fell in love with research and thinking in that way, um, up until the point that whenever it came time to apply to med school, I realized that, you know, I didn't want to just be a physician. I wanted to be a researcher as well um, so at the time I was still pretty young and you know I really loved both so that's why I decided to apply to do the both the um, the MD and the PhD
0: that's excellent and that's a common theme I, when I've talked to people on this podcast is kind of not not having the exposure to research at a young age and it's same thing for me I, I'm, a, I'm a science journalist by training and I don't think I knew The structure of scientific papers and that they were published in these Mm -hmm. journals until i was in my like early 20s i mean i'm not afraid to admit it it was this thing that just never i thought of bill nye the science guy and the you know the kind of the real stereotype um but i I think that points to a (laughs) deficiency maybe (laughs) public school systems but um that's very cool and to get into your research now to kind of skip ahead a little bit so as part of your dissertation research you I believe you identified a marker in people that could reflect exposure to air pollution. Um, Mm I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that, what you found and and why it's important.
1: Yeah, I think um, a good setup for this as well is to let you know that um, while I was in undergrad, a lot of my research was basically um, wet lab work. So I was at a bench with the pipette doing that type of work. Um, But after I started med school, and I'm not sure if the listeners know the way that the MD-PhD works, but you do the first half of med school first, then you go off and do your research. Um, And then after you're done with all of that and you defend your dissertation, then you come back and you do years three and four of med school. Um, So after I had done um, the first half of med school and did a few rotations, I realized that I was really starting to fall in love with population health and public health. Um, And, you know, I had seen so many examples of people who were doing bench work and also, you know, seeing patients in the hospital space. But um, for me, I felt that I wanted to do something a little bit different, that I wanted to do work that was sort of directly working with a population. Um, But I also wanted to make the most of a lot of the molecular and cell bio skills that I had sort of worked on. Um, And I found a great place to marry that. And I think the School of Public Health and specifically in environmental health, it was uh, an area that sort of speaks a lot to me just because uh, we know that environmental health issues are really big, especially in in areas like Africa and West Africa, specifically for me. Um, But also in cities here in the States, right? We've heard about Flint. We've heard about all of these stories of marginalized areas being exposed to um, all of these harmful chemicals. So in thinking about all these things that were sort of swirling around in my head, that public health, environmental health population fit seemed to be a wonderful area. So I joined the Baccarelli lab at the School of Public Health uh, after the end of my second year of med school. And in his lab, uh, I was primarily working on a DNA methylation based marker of aging. Um, That was brand new at the time and no one had really shown any links between the marker and various environmental health exposures and we thought, you know, this would be very novel um, because this marker is unique and it's evolved a bit, but it's unique in the sense that um, it tells you about aging, you know, something that uh, oftentimes happens and you don't necessarily have to be sick, but it can help define, you know, your risk of becoming sick. Um, and if we could show that various environmental exposures actually aged you, or maybe even protected you, you know, we could possibly find ways to intervene before people actually got sick and showed up in a hospital. Um, so in my specific dissertation work, uh, we looked at long-term exposures to ambient particles in the air. Uh, and we were able to show that oftentimes those exposures would actually make you biologically older via these measures that we looked at. Um, and then we also did a f- series of other studies showing that mitochondria, microRNAs, and other molecular actors were also involved in the um, links that we saw.
0: So so moving on to more of your research, I, I think, you know, you mentioned your interest in Africa, specific, specifically West Africa. And I think when most people think of uh, air pollution, they think of massive power plants or traffic, mm. uh, especially here in the States. But you've done research in Nigeria looking at, the health impacts of indoor air pollutants. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and also kind of broadly, if there's any other health or research issues in Africa that you're particularly interested in pursuing that you haven't had a chance to yet.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot to say there. Um, So let me tell you about the study first and then I'll expand on that. So the study, uh, thankfully, when I was a grad student, I was able to work with another student um, in a study that was uh, focused on a region called Ogale, O-G-A-L-E, and Ogale is in the Niger Delta region, um, and it has been a region that has been really affected in a lot of horrible ways by oil spills, Um, and there have been a few studies that have looked at the air there, the water there, and just shown like how harmful the levels of uh, a number of compounds there are but one area that we really didn't see a lot of research was in the indoor space and given that many of the homes have a lot of good ventilation with the outdoor space and given the fact that people oftentimes see this indoor space as like the safe space like when I'm inside nothing can really harm me I'm safe Uh, we thought that it would be important to also like measure what the air was like inside. Um, And this was a pilot study of less than 30 or so homes, but what we saw was that uh, there were levels of various compounds in the air that were harmful, like hundreds of times higher than what we would expect here. Benzene is one of the ones that we found in that study. Um, So I think there really remains a need to understand uh, the holistic exposome or the holistic environmental exposure realm uh in many areas Um, and that's one thing that i hope to work on um uh in the west african space um to expand on the latter part a little bit i mean there are a host of issues but whenever i think about it i think it's best summarized by something that my mom and dad say often which is um you shouldn't have to uh repeat the same mistakes as someone else to learn lessons from those actions, right? So um, as Africa continues to evolve, I think um, we can really look at a lot of the lessons that we've seen from Asia from here in the States and use those to make sure that we're defining and developing in a way that's both uh, environmentally and ethically sound.
0: And do you think that, that maybe it's kind of a a softball question, but I mean, do you think your upbringing helped having that cultural exposure growing up to, to, to research this community as opposed to, um, uh, you know, communities that, that maybe you didn't have as much knowledge about or connection to?
1: I think absolutely. So, um, I think one thing that what you just stated makes me think about is, um, in med school, oftentimes, you know, we're, we're there to help everyone. Um, but there are these moments where the patient in front of you, either from the way that they look or from something that they say, uh, there's something that sort of hits home and you think, oh, this could be my own mother. This could be my neighbor that I used to live next to. This reminds me of this person. Um, and it makes those experiences really human, right? It's not just like a disease in front of you, it's a person. And that person has family and friends, they have a life. Um, um, And I think whenever you're really able to consider the human aspect of that, and I think the same thing applies to how we think about research and exposures, when you're able to like really wrap your mind around the fact that, you know, these are people's lives and aspirations and all these things that are involved here, um, it makes it matter in a different way. So yeah, I'm not sure if I answered what you. <laughs> no, that that makes, up. makes a
0: lot of sense, and it reminds me a lot of uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the similarities between science and journalism because I, it, COVID notwithstanding, I always encourage our reporters to be out in the field because mm-hmm. to write a write a story about uh, blood lead levels in the city of Detroit um, is one thing to look at the report and write report the data, to go into a, a mother's home. And, and talk to a mother who has a child who's been lead poisoned or, or who uh, ha- has been exposed, it, it brings it to life and it really hammers the point home. No. So I think that's an excellent, um, that's an excellent point. And um, one of the areas you're interested in, which I, I just find fascinating. So I want to hear you talk about it is epigenetics. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know about this EHN. We've written about it a little bit, but can you kind of just hold our hand, talk, talk a little bit about what it is, and um, how it further compounds a concern over some of these exposures.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think one thing that comes to mind is that we've all heard the sort of uh, the adage that you are what you eat, right? Um, you are the sum of your exposures. But, you know, those statements don't really tell us how, right? Um, and I think one thing that this field does is it helps people conceptualize and understand how. So, We are all born with uh, DNA. It's like the roadmap that makes us, it makes every aspect of us. Um, And to some extent it makes you at risk or protected against various diseases, right? But the DNA itself is not set in stone, right? It can be modified. Um, it could be modified by DNA methylation, so sort of adding these little marks on it, which can um, affect whether or not a specific site gets expressed more or expressed less. And there's other things as well, but that's the one that most people talk about. Um, and guess what helps drive that? Our environment, right? So different exposures can lead to alterations and methylation, which means that your DNA is read differently, right? Um, so it, it really is neat because it helps give a biological sort of explanation to what I think we all really know that, you know, the things around us can affect us. But this helps to answer how. And that's just one
0: of the so you publish on a, a large range of topics and in, in, in just getting to know you and, and, and watching from afar on, on Twitter and, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm just blown away at all you have going on. And so, I mean, COVID, air, air, trans, air pollution, police brutality. And I'm wondering if you could influence the advancement of one policy change in the next few years, which one would you focus on?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Um, and it's a hard one because, you know, there are a number of things to pick from. The way that I'll answer that is, is, is one of the things that I've tried to do more of Um, So whenever you first start off as a student, you're sort of working with your advisor and doing the things that your advisor uh, has funding for and sort of helps guide you with. But as you become a more independent researcher and scholar and thinker, there's more sort of leeway for you to use those skills that you've sort of built up uh, to really answer things that may be of more interest to you, right? And what that has meant for me, and this is the reason why I sort of uh, even with the MD and the PhD, decided to add on this extra master's in public policy. The reason for that is because I really want to use sort of my life, both professionally and personally, to really help the people who live in my environments and my communities better actualize themselves, right? Um, like I don't, you know, we laugh a lot about like I've spent nine years now basically doing a uh, all of this. Um, But it's to be able to sort of help. So whenever I talk about policy now, I've studied it in a way that I think helps me to speak the language of the people who help legislate. Um, I think the research helps me speak the language of science. I think the medicine helps me speak another language as well. And being able to move through all of those spaces, I think has helped me to sort of see where they really overlap. Um, And then being also around and trying to interact with, people and the places where they live, helps me sort of bring those perspectives into the dialogue as well. So to answer, if there's one specific area that I plan uh, or that I'd want to make major advances in, um, I don't think that's up to me, right? I think what's really uh, in front of me is just listening and hearing about what matters to others, um, and then trying to use my skills to, to make sure that they get the help and the assistance that they need. And whatever that is, if it's police brutality issues, if it's air particles, if it's aging, it'll be what it'll be. But as long as it matters to them and as long as I can help, that's what it's going to be.
0: <laughs> that's great. And, and it's worth acknowledging that, of, of course, you know this. And, and I know that a lot of these are overlapping. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the Venn diagram of these issues, there's a lot of overlap um, but you kind of answered my next question, which was, you know, having all of this training, how do you how do you want to um, push for change? So I'm going to change that up a little bit and mm-hmm. and ask about. Um, obviously, you're in this program because you at least find some importance in communication and outreach. Um, so where do you see that playing a role? Um, kind of very layperson communication when it comes to your kind of future career in research and health.
1: Yeah, I mean we we live in a country where. Um, the people who I mean this is a nation that's really of for and by people, right? So you really need to be able to communicate at 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 the simplest, most direct level, right? There are obviously these like niche realms of people who are super, super specialized, but then there's everyone else. And if you can't translate those that dialogue into the space of everyone else, it's kinda like they don't even hear it right? And if they don't hear you, how can they sort of react or help? Um, So that's one of the reasons why I think the fellowship was really meaningful and is meaningful for me. And not only does it help with sort of networking and meeting people who are working from or on environmental health from various aspects, but it also helps make sure that, you know, you can maintain the skill set of being able to talk and speak in a way that most people can understand.
0: Uh, yeah, I as a as a long-time journalist, I I'm biased, but I just think the power of storytelling is oh, yes. is 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 just so key. Um and and I was thinking about this during the election, you know, we, a lot of us pay a lot of attention and you watch Twitter or whatever and it seems like the country is bubbling over. And you know, 60% of people don't vote. Yeah. <laughs> not only yeah. do they not vote, <laughs> there, so many people have they they don't know. So and then, you know, and that election is hitting us over the head. So to think about studies and research and, and health communication, how many people it's not reaching. Um, I do think there's so much, so much importance trying to find those people, um, uh, yeah. and speak your language. So, well, Jamaji, this has been so much fun. I have one last question that I've been asking everybody. And, uh, that is, what is the last
1: book that you read for fun? Ooh, well, I'm not finished with it, but I'm working through it. now. I, I think I'm about halfway or so through, but I've been reading uh, President Obama's memoir, *Promised Land.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and uh, wow, 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 wow. Uh, there's actually, um, there's a part of it actually that uh, has really struck me in these last few days or so. Um, and it's the part where he's sort of thinking about whether or not he's going to run for president. Um, and he's talking to like friends, advisors and all that stuff. Um, and they say something along the lines of, and this isn't it exactly, but I think it's something along the lines of, uh, you don't pick the moment, the moment picks you. Um, and that line really sort of hit home for me, and I think it hits home for a lot of us, because as we think about our work, our advocacy, our research, using our lives to sort of serve others, um, sure, we get to decide some things, right? But... Service is interesting in that it doesn't really let you decide everything. So you don't always get to pick the who, the what, the where, or the when, but you do know the why, right? You you know that the why is that you wanna help others. And I think I say this all to basically say that it's offered me the very important reflection of all we can personally do is to prepare uh, and to make sure that we're sort of ready Um, So that whenever that moment uh, for us to sort of serve in our unique way happens, that we're ready to make it matter.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Well, Jamaji, this has been, as it is always talking to you, inspiring and wonderful. And I really appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jamaji. Something tells me if you are interested in this environmental research and policy space, this is not the last time you will hear his name. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach and scheduling and support from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Reginald tucker Seely, an assistant professor of gerontology at USC. Dr. Seely came and talked to our fellows about socioeconomic disparities in health and health behavior and the intersection of science and policy. We just had to have him on the podcast. It'll be a great episode. All right, from me and the wet dogs here under my desk, we hope you have a great week.